We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. My guest this week is Nesreen Malik a British-Sudanese writer and newspaper columnist, and a woman I met in that quintessentially modern way in a group WhatsApp chat. Born in Sudan, Malik grew up in Kenya, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. These days, she lives in the slightly more mundane environs of northwest London. A forensic thinker with a ferociously sharp intellect, Malik is so impressively overqualified that she has been to no fewer than three universities – the American University in Cairo and the University of Khartoum as an undergraduate and the University of London as a postgrad. Before becoming a full-time writer, Malik spent 10 years in the finance industry working in emerging markets and private equity. In 2017, she was named Society and Diversity Commentator of the Year at the Comment Awards for her work in The Guardian and this year sees the publication of her first book, We Need New Stories – which comes out in July. Described as a radical and thought-provoking polemic which examines the foundational myths at the centre of current culture wars, the book examines everything from political correctness to sexual liberation. But if all that sounds a bit serious, rest assured that she has excellent opinions on statement earrings and the dynamic between Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper too. (laughs) Nesreen. <laughs> you do, I can't you do. Even remember. What an introduction. There you go. Thank you. You've given me great advice on statement earrings. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes, that's the problem when you're in a WhatsApp group. You kind of can't <laughs> keep track of what you say. But yeah, I, I do remember that that advice. I mentioned in the introduction that you are described as a radical and thought-provoking writer. Do you feel like a radical and thought-provoking person? No. And I think if anyone answered yes to that question, <laughs> they would have other problems. No, it's really strange when people, I mean, I, th- I think a bit of that is kind of marketing spin that people try and kind of add to book descriptions and columns and stuff. 
But I, and this is one of the things that I found really strange when I moved to the UK, things that I just thought were just nominally unconventional were seen as really radical. Mm. And then I realized just how conservative, both socially and politically, this country was. And so even though I wouldn't describe myself as radical at all, I can see from a sort of British mainstream status quo perspective, one can be seen as maybe like two on the left or even though I worked in finance for 10 years, it's not really, not really a background for someone who's like a radical lefty. But also I think, I think if you just try and question very basic things and don't approach either politics or social issues from the prism of very mainstream establishment in the UK, it's kind of still weird. And how old were you when you came to the UK? I was in my early 20s, I think like 22, 23. I'd never even visited the Western world at all. So it was a real head fuck. Can I swear? Absolutely. Oh, amazing. I encourage it. <laughs> um, when I got here, because I had spent my whole life in Africa and the Middle East, in very conservative societies from kind of quite conservative family but had had a Western education. So I kind of knew about the stuff theoretically, but I had never actually lived here. And I didn't come and visit and then go back. Like I just moved straight away. So it was really strange. Given that you grew up in quite a conservative environment, but when you came here, you were questioning the conservatism that you found. Where did that act of questioning come from? Was that something that you were born with? No, I think, well, I don't know. I think... And I try and kind of flesh this out in the intro to the book. Sometimes I thought it was a failing of mine that I couldn't just take things as they were. So back home, I kind of chafed against my family and I chafed against kind of social mores. And sometimes I thought that that was a failing of mine because I just couldn't, I didn't get religion and I didn't get the sort of attraction of being a demure lady in our middle-class Arab family. Other times I flattered myself and I was like, I'm just irrepressible and rebellious and, you know, this is just my personality. So I don't know. Sometimes I thought it was a failing. Other times I thought it was just how I was wired. But I think when I came here, the questioning was definitely a function of idealizing the West. And so when I came here, I had a very specific idea of what I was running away to. And I think when you have high expectations or unrealistic expectations, then you become much more jaundiced much more quickly. And where did the idealization come from? Was that sort of movies and books? It was mostly books, actually. I kind of, it was funny when I, when I think about it in hindsight, I moved in my head, I moved to a sort of conglomerate of Victorian and early 20th century literature London you know what I mean like because it was my education and my mother is an English teacher and so I moved to basically like the Britain of the Bronte sisters and Dickens and Hardy and a little bit of Graham Greene and it was just this sort of very literary landscape that was very anachronistic, actually, nothing really modern. And it's funny because when my, when my mother finally came to visit me a whole decade after I moved, she'd never been to the UK either, even though she taught English literature her whole life. When I took her around London, it was like traveling with a time traveler because she would be like, 
oh, that's Listen Grove. That's a famously working class area from My Fair Lady. <laughs> Listen Grove is not a working class area. It's really posh. But because she's also, she was also stuck in this sort of, you know, literary world. So yeah, the ideation of it came from literature and a little bit of, of sort of contemporary pop culture, whatever filtered through to the Middle East two, three years late. So it was a sort of really strange mix of classical literature and like top of the pops. How horrifying when you came here then and realised it was all made in Chelsea and graffiti. (laughs) It was, I mean, it was a trip. When I first got here, it was above my expectations in some ways. And that London was just so beautiful. Like I still can't get over it all these years later. There was just so much going on and it was sort of the mid-noughties and it was that, I remember that kind of political era where it was sort of the end of Tony Blair. The country was sort of fatted with the complacency of being under New Labour for so long and everyone was just kind of chill and happy. And I moved in the summer and I started a university course. So there was that, I remember that, but there was also lots of really immediate disappointment like misogyny that I crashed into straight away a lot of weird racism that it took me a whole like lot of time to get my head around and was it overt or was it more insidious no it was it wasn't insidious isn't the word British is what I would use but because culturally I hadn't been brought up in it I couldn't understand it so it's quite disorienting and then the third thing was just the sort of it's really difficult to explain but just the sort of repressiveness of the British I found really hard you know I found it really hard not to know what people were thinking and what they meant and how you were judged immediately for very basic quirks of personality which really triggered me because I was like this is what I got away from you know I mean the sort of you know proprietary appearances all the time so yeah, so I'm, I'm still sort of caught in that dichotomy, you know what I mean? Like really loving the country and now I have a British passport and I've been here for, you know, more than 10 years and feel really integrated, but at the same time also quite angry that it doesn't need to be this way, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's so interesting because anger is so often the direct opposite of repression. Yeah. A lot of what people are repressing is that anger that you are bold enough to be able to own I guess I do I'm also quite careful not to see it as a good quality because I think it's also one should be encouraged to try and make peace with how things are because after a certain age it's just not cool anymore you know what I mean to be like oh my god I'm so angry and radical so it's a balance between sort of questioning things and try not to get sort of dragged into the complacency of just a peaceful life So it's a balance between that and just calling things out when you see them, you know? And I think the reason I can't stop doing it is because it's really bad for my mental health when I don't, you know? I feel really unhappy and I feel really sad because, again, I think it goes back to how I grew up, which is you just never say when something is wrong, you know? You never point it out. It's really bad manners. And especially as women, we were taught to, like, compete in terms of how well we could take shit. Like my mother would idealize other women in the family and be like, oh, her husband treats her so badly and he would never tell. And that was the amazing thing, you know, that that she had this kind of unflappability. And so I became so paranoid about that. Have I made this up or was your father a diplomat? He was, Okay, because there's something about being a diplomat's child, I think, because diplomacy, so much of it is about 
face. Yeah, I mean, he was a kind of strange sort of diplomat because he was a military diplomat, which meant that he was less of a sort of gentrified diplomatic reception kind of guy who was more a sort of arms deal kind of diplomat. A very polite arms dealer. (laughs) (laughs) A very slick arms dealer. But the, the pressure came from my father's family, which is a very specific type of Sudanese family, which are kind of just obsessed with form. And what made things worse was that he married out of his family, which at the time was just unheard of, and married my mother, who was, according to them, lowborn. So she became completely paranoid about form because she wanted to prove it to them. So she just drummed it into us, her children. And so the legacy of that has been to, if I ever feel like I am just being dragged away by kind of form and protocol, I really chafe against it. So Britain was not the best place to move. That's so fascinating. (laughs) And I am going to get onto your failures, but I'm just finding this so interesting because that is what your book is about as well. We Need New Stories. It's about questioning the old stories and and wondering why they haven't been replaced yet, isn't it? Yes, it is. And again, it comes back to your original question, which is I did not think this was particularly radical when I thought about it. Actually, my agent just asked me when we were thinking about the book, she said, she just, just said... So what, you know, what upsets you? What is on your mind these days? I just said to her, I just find it really fascinating that there are so many things that people don't question that I think are basically toxic and are behind a lot of the problems that we face politically these days, especially since Brexit here. And I could see a really obvious link between them and what the subtitle of the book is, which is Our Age of Discontent, which is very pompous. And so when we fleshed it out, what... I realized was that this was not anything anyone else had, if not had thought of, but had kind of put to paper. And it's just basic things, things like, you know, people thinking that in the UK we've made great strides in gender equality. And I just thought that was a joke. Or people saying that freedom of speech was this amazing value that we need to be very covetous of when shysters and right-wingers and racists were using it to promote hate. And we're recording this on the day that at least 50 people were killed in New Zealand in four mosques. And the background to that is just this sort of fetishization of freedom of speech, which is something that people fell for because it had this sort of nice liberal ring to it, but was hiding so much ugliness. Or things like political correctness, you know, people saying political correctness is a bad thing. And I remember that was one of the first things I picked up on years and years ago. People saying, oh, it's political correctness got mad. It's been happening for such a long time. I remember thinking, what's wrong with political correctness? Like, where do you want your racism? Do you want it repressed and in the sewer? Do you want it outside? You know, it just, I couldn't understand how these things were not being questioned in an earnest way, not in a kind of culture war way. And what I'm trying to do with the book is get away from the kind of binary, awful, culture war way of talking about these things, which is say, you know, you're either a PC warrior or a social justice warrior. You know, you're either an alt-right racist or a far left momentum, blah. Like, I just feel we also have got trapped in these binaries. So it's a long-winded answer, but There are things I think are obviously problematic that we do not push back against for a a variety of reasons. And the end result is completely mainstream xenophobia, a regressive gender equality environment, and sort of an unsafe world, basically, an increasingly unsafe world for minorities and, and the disenfranchised. 
You can see why Nesrin is such an amazing person to be in a WhatsApp group with because every time I'm like, what should I think about this? And you always have the most blisteringly brilliant take. And I cannot wait for the book. I really can't. And you should all rush out and pre-order it because it's out in July. Is that right? It's out in September now. September. Okay. September 5th. But this brings me on to your first failure. It's astonishing that you ever even wrote that book, that you were able to write that book, because one of your failures is getting a B in GCSE oh English. God, this is, which is the something first you- time I've ever confessed this to anyone. This is a really obnoxious failure. I'm quite aware of that. It's a sort of failure. It's kind of an interview question failure where people say, you know, what's your weakness? And you say, oh, I'm just too dedicated. Yeah, I, I'm I a perfectionist. Work, so I fail to yeah, delegate. Exactly. <laughs> I work too hard. I'm too loyal. Yeah, it's a really obnoxious failure because, I mean, who cares if you got to be in English, but you don't you have to understand. <laughs> like English was my thing. You know, it was my thing. And I was certain from such a young age that I was going to be a writer. And I loved everything about it. I loved reading. I loved writing. I would go to bed. This is going to sound really obnoxious, but I would go to bed with a dictionary and just kind of leaf through it and learn new words. It was less about English, I think. I kind of liked all languages, but I had a really, really good English teacher who just made me fall in love with the subject. He was wonderful. It was more than just an academic passion. It became a way for me to like make sense of the world because we traveled loads when I was a kid. My parents were chaotic. We, you know, we moved every three, four years sometimes and no one really talked to us, me and my, my sister. No one really was like, okay, so we're going here and this is what's happening, which is just kind of classic old school parenting. I think in hindsight, I had a slightly adult brain and English just helped me organize the world because the words nailed ideas right so I would find a word and I would think oh okay I understand this concept now because I found a word for it so I became obsessed with the language and I just got A's effortlessly like didn't say anyway and obviously it's all leading up to your GCSEs And the GCSE English A was just in the bag. Like, I didn't even need to think about it. But then, unfortunately, this is such a sad story for me. (laughs) It is for me as well, because I completely relate. I would have been devastated if I got a B in English, just to make you feel even worse. But because of what you're saying... Because I didn't get to be unlike you. I mean, I got an A star, (laughs) but who's counting? Um, No, but because... I think as you're saying, it was an act of self-definition for me being good at English because I also always knew that I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And so it became much more than just a test or an exam. Yeah. It was me. Yeah. It was like I was being graded on myself. Absolutely. That's Sorry. how I felt. So the year, the crucial year of GCSEs, two things happened. Things got very hard at home for some reason, like we just had kind of a slightly restive domestic situation. And my teacher left and she's called Mrs. Philippa and she was incredible and she had red hair and lots of freckles. Honestly, by the time Miss Philippa left, this is like therapy, you don't understand. I've never said this to anyone. <laughs> by the time Miss Philippa left, I think I took my GCSEs very young for a, a variety of reasons. But I was probably at college level English, I like university level English by the time Miss Philippa left because she just took such an interest in me. Like I would go to the library and find that she had borrowed books in my name. So she wouldn't let me borrow 
books to read for entertainment. She like wanted to make sure that I read all the classics. So by the time I was, I was 14, I'd read like Brideshead Revisited, like all of Virginia Woolf. And did you take your GCSEs when you were 14? Yeah. Wow. Okay. For political reasons, because there was a military coup and the government had Arabized the university system and was going to kill GCSEs. So I only had one year to take them, otherwise there would be no more GCSEs. Oh my God. Yeah, it was really stressful. So Miss Philippa left at this really v- very crucial year and got replaced by a terrible teacher. God rest his soul. And he just didn't want to be there. He This is kind of a parable about how teaching can be so vital. He didn't want to be there. He didn't, he, you know, it was in Sudan. It was this kind of a one-horse town. It was sort of dusty sub-Saharan country. And he just wasn't interested and was annoyed by me because I was really precocious and just wanted to like practice and that put him off. So I kind of languished a little bit. Then when the exam came, we had no preparation for it and I bombed. And one thing that was supposed to make me feel better is that everybody bombed, is that the whole class performance in the subject was so below the graph that it was obviously a problem with the teacher. But for me, I remember just walking around in a daze afterwards, after getting the result. And I just, I knew it. I knew I'd blown it as well. But after the result, I remember just walking around being like, okay, so who am I? You know, what am I going to do now? What work am I going to do? Like, how can I have this on? And I lied. I lied about it. Like, people just assumed that I got an A and I didn't want to tell them that I didn't because it was just like, it was what I did. Did you lie to your parents about it? No, I mean, they saw the report. I mean, to be fair to them, because they were so certain of my skill, they were like, don't worry about it. This teacher obviously messed you up. There's no way you'd be getting a B. But I lied to my friends because I was so embarrassed. It's like so many years later and it's the first time I've said it. It knocked me. It really knocked me for six. Like it took a long time for me to kind of, and I remember I can tell you, I can tell you the, the questions in that exam. It's just really seared in my brain. But the moral of the story is that so much hinges. I mean, even if you have, I had such a long run up to this exam, you know, years Your and years. Your whole life. Yeah. yeah. And it just took one year of a lousy teacher to screw it up. So... And also exams are never just exams at that age because you are working out who you are. And so it carries an enormous amount of weight if it's something that you love. Absolutely. And also for all of us actually in that class, again, for political reasons, our grades were our ticket out. Mm. You know, we either made it to a good university outside of the country or we didn't. So the pressure on us was insane because I remember I, remember I was applying to American University in Cairo because the University of Khartoum had been Arabized. So that was a whole other nightmare. And I remember thinking, like, if I, you know, if I don't get these grades, I'm stuck here doing medicine or something, which is not something I wanted to do. So we were all really stressed out kids because, the, you know, our grades were a ticket out of this sort of post-military coup dictatorship country. Were you scared of, of the political situation? Well... I wasn't scared. I just knew that it was going to get worse. And it did. It was the end of generation, basically. Like the generation that stayed, generation that stayed of mine and the generation behind me in Sudan is a lost generation or are a lost generation because the government destroyed universities. They monopolized the education system and they killed the civil service. So 
we all knew that there was no way we would be anything apart from, you know, for the women, maybe stay-at-home wives to good men and maybe be doctors. The only thing you could really be is a doctor or try and get out. And I actually, I got out. I did get the grades to get out, but then I came back to the University of Khartoum because the school that I wanted to go to was in English, so I could do that. But it was hard. My university years were, like, a mess. Did you do English A-level? No, we didn't have A-levels. So did you do English at university? No, I did politics. I'm just trying to find some like, <laughs> justice for you. No, did you ever do another English exam? There, is, there was no justice for me, Liz Lewis. There was, there was no <laughs> justice for me. There was no second act. There were no reparations. I remember even the headmaster of the school took me to his office and was like, what the fuck is that all about? And I was like, I don't know. I'm so sorry. So no, there, I, I guess the only thing that makes it a little bit better is that I did end up being a writer. Yeah. After a long loop. But it really, it really knocked my confidence for a long time. Do you think that long loop, now looking back on it, was semi-deliberate because it, you were so badly scolded by the bee? No, no, to... I wish I could say that. The long loop was because I could not afford to be a writer, very simply. The long loop was because there was no way I could survive and support my family in the UK by doing like a year's internship somewhere in journalism and doing entry level. I just don't know how to be, I just, I, I don't know anyone who has done it without family support and independent wealth. And so what I did was created a synthetic trust fund for myself in that I worked for 10 years and moonlighted. Is that the verb? My English yeah. is so bad because I got a B. Um, moonlighted. <laughs> I don't know if it's moonlit or moonlighted, but I feel like moonlighted sounds moon, more... Yeah, moonlit sounds like gaslit. Yeah, so I moonlighted as a writer for 10 years and kind of created a ramp up by working and creating enough money to be able to support myself when I started writing. Did you say time. that you were also supporting your family? Yes, which is just not unusual at all. It's just like what people from where I come from do. My father died quite suddenly when I was quite young and just left us in the lurch a little bit. We were four girls, so it's a very kind of not patriarchal society in the sense that it's like Saudi Arabia, but if you're going to manage the legacy of someone who died intestate in Sudan... It's helpful if you're a dude. So we had a wobbly period after he died and like I had two sisters still in school. And so, yeah, I spent the first few years of working here basically splitting my income with my family, which was fine. How old were you when your dad died? I was 19 and my littlest sister was like six, five, six. So, yeah, and it was all very sudden. So we weren't prepared financially for it. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. 
Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code FAIL10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Maybe that brings us on to the second failure that you've identified, and we can explore that a bit more, because that sounds an incredibly difficult period of your life. Your second failure is still having mommy and daddy issues at your age. so lame. (laughs) Because, and then you carried on, you said... Because I had resolved that I would have figured all of that out by now. And it fucks me off that I haven't. Yeah, it really annoys me. I'm just like, it's so, it's just not cool, man. You know, you just think by a certain age. How old are you now? So I'm 38. And now you think by a certain age, you just shouldn't have parent issues. You know what I mean? And I was so hyper aware of them from such a young age. I was like, okay, this is a to-do. I'm not going to get fucked up about this. You know know, know what I'm saying? Like I knew it wasn't like... I reached a certain age and then realized I had issues. I knew from a really young age that I had issues. And that actually, you know, all of my siblings do because of the very specific nature of our family. And I remember kind of clocking it and being like, okay, you need to make sure this is something that you resolve. So it's not there getting in your way and stopping you from growing as a person. And I haven't been able to. It just keeps catching up with me in a way that I found really depressing at one point because the way my brain works, I think in arcs all the time, right? Like nothing is random. <laughs> so I think in I think maybe it's like a childhood, like reading novels, too many novels. But I always think in terms of narrative arcs. And my narrative arc was that I would go through strife and I would overcome it. And I would drag the rest of my family with me. And we would all like, you know, sit in the sun-dappled yard somewhere. And it didn't work out that way. And when I realized that wasn't going to happen, I just collapsed. I was like, oh, this is actually maybe just going to be a work in progress for the rest of my life. And my brain couldn't process that lack of arc that sometimes you don't resolve issues. And sometimes they do just fuck you up and you can't really do anything about it. How do you think those issues have fucked you up? Like, how, oh, God. Impact? I mean, how long have you got? I was so engrossed in my parents' story and their relationship and their own really actually interesting backgrounds as kind of post-colonial African generation of people who kind of were the first people to get an education, the first people to travel, the first people to try and have relationships that weren't arranged. And they just weren't ready. It was just too much for them. And so I was so engrossed in that growing up that it's made it really hard for me to lean into kind of normal, conventional social relationships. I just don't understand that. It's not how I grew up. I don't get it. And I want to 
because there's always kind of a barrier between me and the world because it was me and my parents and then everyone else, you know what I mean? So I think it's made me slightly just permanently alienated, if that makes sense, like separate. It sounds to me, it it does make sense. Tell me if it's making sense in the right way to me, because Mm. it sounds to me as if you were growing up in such a dramatic environment mm. as it and it wasn't self-created drama as it is no, it in so many british imposed. families no. it was like big stuff that was happening that it was almost like living normally in and of itself was an act of political will as well as personal it was also we're of the post-colonial generation we're going to make this mm. effort to do things differently so maybe it's just the sort of grinding mundanity of a normal social interaction which seems odd to you that's a really good way of putting it because, wow, I think I've just had a breakthrough. This is what Oprah would call a teachable moment. <laughs> or like an aha moment. <laughs> yes, that's a very good way of putting it in that there was always drama and your brain becomes shaped, I guess, to seek familiarity in patterns. And if that was the pattern you grew up with, that's what you're familiar with. And I think maybe that's linked to my chafing against mundanity, like even little things like... Like, I embarrass myself sometimes. Like, I remember one time going to a dinner party, like a really boring South London dinner party one time. People I didn't really know. One of those, like, oh, how did you get here? And it's like, oh, you know, we took the overground. Oh, my God, it's so good, the overground, isn't it? It's so civilised. <laughs> and then, you know, people having hors d'oeuvres and then, you know, bringing the kids around, saying goodnight to the kids. And I remember thinking, I want to die. I was so <laughs> distressed by this really quite pleasant situation and then bless her the woman who invited us said oh I've made whatever like zatar chicken it's otolenghi and I said of course it is and I remember my partner looking at me and being like are you mad why why are you being such a bitch and I like that that dinner party really stayed in my mind because I was like wow I am not actually qualified to be out in society (laughs) do you feel as well that in those moments that you're there as the drama so it's almost like the people having the zathal chicken can have it from a nice like recipe book it's like a sort of safe space and you're the person who's there as the kind of exotic bauble i think i get very upset and agitated when people aren't talking about real stuff it means that if we're having a mundane conversation about the weather or the Zatar chicken or how did you get here, I just want to ask something like, are you happy? Yes. You, know, like... you have come to the right podcast, <laughs> can I just say? This is just music to my ears. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just, I, and sometimes I feel that is really immature and a bit emo. But other times I, I also think like, what are we doing here? You know, yeah. like we're here, we're together, we're human beings. We've chosen to congregate and share. So what is the point if we just have phatic communication about stuff? We might as well not do it at all. And I understand not every interaction can be this kind of Proustian philosophical exercise in humanity. But like, make a fucking effort, you know what I mean? You're a truth teller. Even when you told me what your failures were, you said that you had thought very hard about them so that you didn't choose flattering failures. Like, it's that level of honesty that I so (laughs) admire. (laughs) But I think also that forensicness is also kind of slightly self-aggrandizing. You know, I mean, like, one of my friends said to me the other day 
and I really related to this. There was an author she doesn't like, and she read something of theirs that she did like, and she was really agitated by it. And I said, oh, you know, maybe she just, you know, this new author's just found their stride. And she said, no, I was wrong. I hate being wrong. So now I'm going to really lean into this author. And I thought, I really relate to that. The worst thing is to be wrong. And sometimes the forensicness that one applies to things like choosing failures that are not flattering is really kind of self-aggrandizing into being like, I am too good to be wrong and I'm too good to flatter myself. Don't feel you have to answer this, but can I ask you, you say that your father's death was sudden. Why, mm. why was it sudden? It was just a really aggressive cancer. I'm so sorry. That we caught really late. And I think even if we'd caught earlier, it wouldn't have helped. It was an incurable brain cancer that his mother had died of and his brother. So I think it's in the family. And from diagnosis to him passing, it was five months. And he was really young. He was 55, 56. And he was a huge figure, really determined who we were. And, and me and him in particular had a very difficult relationship. It was quite a shock. No wonder you're impatient when people don't make the most of their lives and talk about? Well, you know, one thing I thought about, particularly for this podcast, is I spent a lot of my formative years in complete hermetic boredom and silence. A, because of where we lived at the time, there was just nothing to do. And B, because, and this is going back to the sort of family parental issues, because my father used entertainment as a way to punish us because it was the only thing that we had. So I spent so much time just bored out of my wits and I remember becoming so desperate for entertainment that I would read the ingredients on toothpaste packets and like head and shoulders bottles and stuff because we had nothing and he at one point he made me when he realized that reading was kind of an escape, he made me take all the books back to the library because he realized I'd found like a little window in my head. And so many nights I would just lie in bed, especially in summer, over summer holidays, I would just lie in bed looking at the ceiling. And it was just silence, like no radio, no TV. I couldn't read anything. And that went on for so long in my formative years that part of my social incontinence, I think is that. It's like, do you understand how much time I've wasted? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, do you understand yeah. like how to how much time one can waste just going through the motions? Like, do you understand that you can read and you can talk and you can connect and you can do stuff? Of course, that's not fair because people have to live life at their own pace. And when they're normal and not kind of gnarled, they can just chill. So everything comes back to that sort of trying to find that balance. It's so fascinating. There is one more failure that we need to discuss and we've got about five minutes. Yeah. But it, and it's a massive, <laughs> it's like a massive concept. So I'm really sorry that we have to squeeze it in. But your third and final failure is never being able to put down roots anywhere properly. Yes. I thought that was a pretty cool thing because I had been brainwashed by obnoxious people I'd gone to school with who would be like, I'm a third culture child at TKCs, they're called. Have you heard of that? No. If somebody identifies as a TKC, they're a wanker, I'm telling you. Third culture Third being... culture children. People who like don't belong to one or two cultures. People who kind of are either mixed race but live somewhere else. Okay. It was this kind of shorthand that appeared 
in the 90s and early noughties, along with Afropolitan, which was just a way for African and Arab kids to, like, make themselves feel special when all they were basically was rich, as opposed to, you know, uniquely multicultural. You know those people who are always like, yeah, you know, they, you know, they go into forensic detail about how many different nationalities they're from and where they lived and how many languages they speak. And so I was brainwashed into that when I was growing up. So I was that person for a while being like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm from Sudan, but I grew up here and I live there and I speak these many languages. I kind of feel at home in my different places. But I suppose my real, I, I was just so boring. And then I realized that that was actually not cool at all because you need to feel in a place. You need to feel at home. And that really shocked me when I got that feeling because I just thought that was a thing that I didn't have that had liberated me. You know, I thought, oh, all my friends are like buying houses and settling down and going to Habitat. And oh, imagine, you know, imagine like caring about all that stuff. And then I got to a point where I was like, I have no paintings in my flat. And I always seem to have this sort of transient furniture. And I can never look at something and be like, oh, that would be nice to have there. Or I can't really project domestic scenes in particular, like domestic scenes. I just can't project them in my head because I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to be. I don't know if I'm going to be in this flat. I've moved so much in London. I moved so much in between countries before moving to London. And then since then, like my life has taken on a different shape as well, where I spend lots of time in now in Cairo as well. Because you're married. Yes. You did, you did manage to yes. establish those roots. Yes. <laughs> Barely. Just <laughs> talk about chafing. Wow. Um, yeah, now I just think it's kind of sad. And you, I don't know how to do it. And do you think part of it is because you're so aware, having grown up in the way that you did, that stuff can change in a flash and that you need to be ready to go and to like get out? Yeah, I think that's one of them. We never lived in one place for long enough for me to feel, or I didn't. I, I, my family and I lived in Sudan for quite a long time, but I didn't ever live in a, in a single place for long enough. And even then I knew like this was all, we have to pack up and leave at some point, just make it easier. And the second reason I think also is that I'm just afraid, I guess. I'm afraid to call it and say, this is it, and then be stuck, I guess. And then be like, oh God, why now I have to unwind this whole <laughs> enterprise. But having said that, it's one of the biggest pains, actually. It's painful. One of the biggest pains of my life. It's a very specific image to walk down the street in any city, whether it's Cairo or London, and just see, like, the light shining out of a home and see really banal domesticity, like someone, you know, hosing down their yard or scooping out some pasta for dinner. And I just look at these scenes and it just tugs at me. And I have this, again, narrative arcs. I have this arc in my head where instead of thinking, okay, you know, you could kind of work towards that. I just think maybe that's one of my curses. Maybe that's one of the things I'll never be able to achieve. And I kind of torture myself by like walking in really lovely kind of domestic, you know, sort of residential parts of cities and looking at other people's homes and, and feeling really excluded from that. And that I feel is a proper failure in that like I have not figured out how to do it quite bleak isn't it I feel like we've ended up oh quite gosh, bleak just, no bleak but it's also beautiful because I understand where you're coming from mm. in that I had that thing of walking past people's windows 
and feeling like I was opening the window of an advent calendar and you could just yeah. see in a little snippet of someone's life. And I have never got that either. I have never had the conventional home with a family and the Christmas tree in the bay window. Yeah. But I do find it easy to create homes in spaces. So although I've never had that, the end of that particular narrative arc, the way that I've lived has been different, but richer because of it. Mm. And, and that's okay. Yeah. I just think you need to buy some pictures. <laughs> and, and I think you and your husband need to live in the same city because he's living half the time in Cairo, isn't he? Yeah. 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 But that's also, I feel, a situation that came out of, I think, both of us being quite peripatetic, you know, which is an awkward combination. I can see because it's so scary. It is scary mm. for someone like you to be vulnerable and to attach yourself to another human being. Mm of your own free volition mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe that's it's like a staging post in in your marriage it's like this is the way that we can do this right now yeah I mean it works but he is also someone who is just effortless at building a life I mean I look at him and it's like see you know, you know there's nature there's nature documentaries God, I hope he doesn't hear this and there's nature documentaries where you just they fast forward a robin yes building yes, a nest, nest and you're yeah. just like oh, how did you do that from like twigs and flotsam he is like that and so he just he just creates like beauty and nests wherever he goes and I look at him doing it and I'm like you're just a different creature to me and so maybe that will make me better but maybe it will also make me worse because I will feel like I don't have to do it because he's doing it. I think this is going to be a wonderful thing and I think you're only just starting to live this period of your life. It's true yeah. And I would like you to come back on to How to Fail in <laughs> 10 to 15 years time. And, and be like reassess. I live in a bed sit. <laughs> I live in a nest, an actual nest. <laughs> Oh, Nesri Malik, you are a constant inspiration to me. You're amazing. And your failures were so eloquent and beautiful and insightful. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I would like to say to the listeners, I haven't gone out for a month because I've been editing my book. And I've not slept last night because there's terrible news stories. So this is the most incontinent interview I've ever given. Well, it didn't sound like it. And also, that's great for me. So thanks. (laughs) Thank you. It was wonderful. Thanks for having me. 